You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, I interview Andrew about his involvement with the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's value theory. This is not a really theoretically heavy episode. This is more of an oral history about Andrew's reminiscences about the early days of the TSSI, how the ideas were developed, and what sort of acceptance and resistance they got over the years. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to MHI there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will commence our discussion about uh, Andrew's memories of the early days of the TSSI. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So for our current events section in this episode, we're going to be talking about two pieces that came out in Salon recently on November 24th and 25th. There was a piece by Bob Cheska entitled, Enough Cowardice, Democrats Must Forge Ahead Without Caring What the Trumpers Say, and a piece by Amanda Marcotte entitled, Trump Isn't the Reason We Can't Quit Trump, The Obsession is Really About His Followers. Both pieces are addressing a similar set of questions, so we thought we could discuss them together. The Amanda Marcotte piece begins by asking this question of why people are still talking about Trump, even though he's a lame duck president, asking whether it's important to be still discussing Trump and all of his antics. That's the way it begins, and they're describing it as an addiction, and uh, she says it's fashionable in some circles to heartily declare that all this continuing interest in Trump is tawdry, and if we simply ignore Trump, he'd go away. So Amanda Marcotte's point is that, look, this was never really about Trump in the first place. The real problem has always been what she calls the Red Hats, his these 70 million people who are his followers. Um, And she argues that, look, Trump has always just been a vehicle for these people. He himself isn't that important. It's the the phenomena of that all these people want to show up to his rallies to like show support for this cause and that they're down with the cause. She even points out that, look, a lot of people in the Trump rallies, they're just as bored as the rest of us by his speeches, but they think it's important to, to show up to these things. Yeah, and it's a, it's a show of strength. We're fighting to take our country back, right? It, the, the whole idea that, like, okay, Trump leaves office, even if he were to go into retirement, which is un- unlikely that he do that voluntarily, you know, even if he leaves office, Trump did not create Trumpism. It's a pre-existing condition. Trumpism created Trump. So, I mean, she's right that this is what people have been grappling with f- for years is, like, My God, 2016, November, the election, we didn't realize how many crazed proto-fascists there were in this country. We knew there was a lot of them, but this many? And then, of course, about a month ago, what you get is, oh my God, you know, now there's even more that that voted for him this time. And she says in, in, in her piece that 
about these rallies, there were a show of force to let the hated liberals know that they had the numbers and the determination to do what? To take power back. So she says, quite rightly, I think that Trump was a vehicle for their resentments and their will to power. And, that, and, and, and that's what it's all about. And that's why it's, it's all still, to, to my mind, it's extremely scary. And this whole idea of, okay, we're, we're going to return to normal and we shouldn't go after Trump or the Trump people, prosecute them for crimes, because that would be an implicit rebuke to his voters. Well, hell yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Try to win these people over? I mean, right? How many, how many, how many years of this is it going to take till you know you understand that like fascists want fascism? And this brings us to the Bob Cheska piece in which he is arguing against this idea that we're just going to have this return to civil politics under a Biden administration and that we're really going to like really unite the country uh, around any kind of common understanding of anything. Uh, you know, he he talks about this terrible phenomenon in which the GOP is frightened of the red hats and uh, will are afraid to call out Trump or do anything to defend democracy and the rule of law because of their fear of this base. And he also points out that, like, look, the Democrats are often afraid of these people too and don't really call a spade a spade and attack the fascist nature of the Trumpite base for what it is, but you know, speak vaguely enough to satisfy the Democratic base, but not confrontationally enough to actually say things like, look, this is fascism and it's destroying America. Right. There's always this, this, this kind of thing. I mean, that was like the one little bit of Cheska's piece that I would take issue with in a certain sense. I don't find totally convincing. I mean, if you say the Republicans are afraid and the Democrats and so forth are afraid, it's two different things. And uh, the Republicans are afraid of being primaried, losing their, their Senate seat in the Republican primary or their House seat in the Republican primary if they're not Trumpite enough. Are the Democrats afraid of the base? I mean, how could they possibly be afraid of the base in the same way? Well, the Democrats are afraid of losing their power in the House or the Senate, uh, you know, because they have these members who are in swing districts and swing states and swing counties, people like Joe Manchin or Connor Lamb, who have this sort of mix of, of red and blue voters. And they're afraid that those people are going to lose their their seats and that the Democrats will lose their power in these chambers. Right. And this was the big fight among the Democrats, like right after the election, you know, what were her, her name, Abigail Spanberger versus Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Connor Lamb. And yeah, I mean, that was the big fight and that the Democrats to hold on to a slim numerical majority can't lose these Democratic representatives in swing districts, basically Republican districts where, you know, they eked out a victory in, in 2018. There's a difference there between, you take Marco Rubio. He's afraid of his Senate seat if he doesn't, like, you know, be, be a total toady to, to Donald Trump. What's Nancy Pelosi afraid of? She's, I mean, she can't be afraid in the same way. She's from San Francisco. Well, she's afraid of the Democrats losing the House, and then she's no longer Speaker. Right, right. Okay, see, see and, that, and, that's, and that's the difference. It's, 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 not, it's, it's not a personal fear. It's not even a personal career fear to your own career. It, it, there's a certain attachment to a way of doing politics. 
that, that makes it different to call this and, and, and what the people like Rubio do, to call that like, oh, they're both afraid. The, the, the Democrats have an alternative that does not mean that they have to shrivel up and die as Rubio would do. They can do politics a different way. Okay, I mean, obviously, what I'm talking about is not the electoral road to power, right? I mean, but that's over and done with. As long as, as, long as you, you've got, you know, a near majority that's willing to go fascist no matter what. And they've shown that they are in two successive elections. And you got uh, the courts that are going to allow a, a, a minority to hold power. And you've got the states and the, the with the control of their own elections. And you've got the, the gerrymandering, and it's going to be coming back in a big way. And you've got the imbalance in the Senate. You, when you've got all of this, you, you've, you've got a system where a minority can rule. I mean, how can the, the, the Democrats possibly think that they're going to be able to hold power under these conditions against a, an increasingly rabid and increasingly angry and resentful white national formation by doing normal politics I, right that you could call it fear but it seems to me it's the fear of breaking out of electoral politics as the way of doing politics or the sole way of doing politics hmm that makes sense that makes sense I, I mean but but it's but it's crazy because it, it doesn't require a lot of genius to say you don't go after the trumpite base you don't go after the the trumpites you don't go after the republican party you placate them, and you give in, and you give in, and you give in, and and that'll make things better. You know, Cheska is very good about that. He's like, he says, um, history has taught us that appeasement only makes the aggressor more aggressive. That's absolutely correct. I mean, you you look at what Obama did, uh, and probably what uh, Biden will be trying to do. What happens? You get the Tea Party, and they're more and more rabid, and McConnell more and more crazy, and they they they, they smell softness. They, they 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 smell wavering indecision. What drives me crazy is is like when when these people talk about like we have to let bygones be bygones, and we can't prosecute, and we can't have a truth and reconciliation commission, and all of this. These people are all still a threat. Trump is still a threat, even if he leaves office, he's still a threat, and you've. Got got the Geneva, the Trump lawyer, saying that the election guy, Krebs, should be taken out and shot, right? Flynn, saying that, screw the election, you know, just like, take power. They're, they're getting more and more crazy, and more and more like, let's just have complete fascism. These people are a huge continuing threat, and it's not just the Flynn's, it's the, the, the base as well. What you said is obviously absolutely right. There, Democrats are trying to hold on to swing districts. It didn't work too well, though, did it? Right. But that's the strategy. But but to say that they're like afraid of this base, it's like this base is the source of their troubles, the source of all of our troubles, and it's 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 going to do them in. Well, I'm sure this is not the last time we will be talking about this topic. So, tune in for future current events sections. And uh, up next, our discussion about uh, the early days of the TSSI. So we are going to spend this episode talking about Andrew's recollections of the origin and evolution of the TSSI, or the Temporal Single System Interpretation of Marx's Value Theory. Of course, we have 
we have had more theoretical discussions about the TSSI in past episodes, but this is going to be more of a uh, sort of oral history of Andrew's memory and recollections about the, the early days of the TSSI, where these ideas came from and, and how they evolved and how people responded to them over the years. If listeners are interested in more theoretical discussions of these issues, you should definitely check out the uh, podcast episode we did on the new Spanish edition of Andrew's book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital. And of course, you should check out Andrew's book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, and you know read it for yourself and get, get the whole idea. So as readers of your book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, know, Andrew, in the preface to the book, you devote just a few paragraphs talking about this aha moment you had in grad school where you realized that perhaps the story you had been fed about this so-called transformation problem maybe didn't hold up. So, you know, before that moment, what was your understanding of the transformation problem? It was pretty much non-understanding based on what I heard from others, which was also largely uh, non-understanding. Let me take you back to my beginning with all of this. Uh, in the 1982-83 school year, uh, I was a master's student at the New School for Social Research. Anyway, in the, in the master's program, you could actually take a whole year, two courses on Marx's capital. And, you know, it was... It was really a tremendous experience reading Marx like really carefully uh, all through the, the first semester of the fall, you know, then the second semester. And then all of a sudden, from a focus on here's what like Marx had said, when we get to like volume three, all of a sudden now we're being hit with like, oh, there's these vague allusions to, well, there's this transformation problem and uh, there's this thing called the Okishio theorem and people like throw these words out when you haven't heard of them, you, you know, you're like, what, what, what are they talking about? And not only that, they had, in addition to the classes, there were these special one session arranged on an off night seminars led by the, the teaching assistant one on the transformation problem and one on the Okisho theorem, where in two hours this person tried to explain to everybody what the, the whole problem was in the one case and in the other case. What was all the talk of the time was Ian Steedman's book, Ian Steedman being a major, major post-Shroffian or Shroffian, near Ricardian, whatever you would call him, uh, his book, Marx After Shroffa, which had come out, uh, what, I think 1977. So it, it was still new and, and people were still trying to uh, assimilate what was going on. And, you know, I would like ask people, what's this about and what's that about? And I'm taking notes and people are recording on devices which are much larger than those we have now you know and it was treated with great seriousness but I came out of that not really understanding a thing about it other than well everybody agrees that Marx got it wrong and there's an error but we were able to fix it uh, so it's no problem and you know what's essential about Marx uh, survives unscathed the, the real question is what is left of Marx after at least his original version of the so-called labor theory of value is, is, is jettisoned. And there, there were criticisms of the Shroffians, and it, it was all, in, in my mind, really unclear. Were you aware that it was unclear at the time? Did you think you understood the contours of no, it? No, I, 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 I didn't understand anything technical. 
I see. Ba- ba- basically, I, w- I was like, oh, okay, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know that, that that was the takeaway that that, that I that I took away probably eighty percent of people at, at that school and everywhere else who've ever encountered this. Right, uh, right. That's but that was in your master's program. That was in the master's program. Yeah. And then. And I didn't get a master's because uh, after that one year, I transferred to the University of Utah. Hmm. In the first couple of years, I was just doing the standard uh, mainstream neoclassical economics program. And in my third year, there was uh, I could concentrate in what they call political economy, uh, and I did. And so you had this uh, the head Marxist there, E.K. Hunt, and, and others. You had Mark Lick and Hans Erbar. And in the midst of this thing about the transformation problem and not even sure about the Akisha theorem. Yeah, that must have come in there as, as well. Uh, but certainly the transformation problem uh, becomes a big deal. I still don't understand the the technical guts of, of it, right? But I'm getting the catechism down a little bit better. Uh, you know, Marx forgot to transform the input prices. And everybody agrees that Marx made an error and he forgot to transform the input prices. But when you transform the input prices, uh, everything's okay. And so now it's all a question of how exactly do you build on, on Marx. So what I knew above everything was Marx forgot to transform the input prices. And this was said with, you know, in such sonorous tones that it was like, oh my God, he forgot to transform the input prices. <laughs> He walked out of the house without his keys. Yeah. He eats babies. I mean, you know, like right. So, so that that that's where matters stood in, until I started getting pestered uh, by Ted McLone, who was a fellow graduate student. So you had sort of accepted the orthodox interpretation of the transformation problem, and then one day Ted McLone asked you. Why does Marx have to transform input prices? So he asked me, and I go, well, Marx forgot to transform the input prices. And he says, okay, well, why is that a problem? I go, um, <laughs> well, I, I go, look, I, you know, I'm not sure, but like, you know, they all say it's a problem. Then he came back five days later, maybe a week later, same thing. Same kind of answer from me. Look, you know, these are Marxist professors. You know, they're 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 not trying to they're not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. They like Marx. You know, it's just like why can't you just accept this? <laughs> the, the, the questions persisted. I mean, it was at least after the third inquiry, interrogation from Ted McLone, maybe the fourth, maybe the fifth, but it, it was after at least the, the third that I said, okay, the hell with it. I, I can't keep doing this, just saying, well, it's a problem. I don't know why it's a problem, but they say it's a problem. Let's just accept it. I mean, finally, I said, okay, I'm going to figure this thing out. That, if I'm not mistaken, was in January of 1986. So, so at some point, your, your understanding of the situation evolved from thinking, well, I just need to figure out the reason that Marx was wrong to suspecting that maybe there was a whole other way of looking at the problem. Like, how did that shift happen? You know, like, first you were trying to explain to Ted McGlone why Marx needed to transform the inputs, and you were looking for a good reason. And then at some point, that understanding shifted to realizing that the entire conceptualization of the transformation problem was a bad interpretation of Marx. Like, you know, how, how did your thinking shift from one, you know, one side to the other? Yeah, well, the suspicion came after the refutation, after the disproof 
of Bortkevich's claim, uh, and that pretty much was the TSSI in the disproof of that claim, although we didn't fully understand it at the time. So basically after, I mean, it, it was weeks of, of, of being hounded, you know, it wasn't like continuously every day, but it, it was, it, it kept going on and it kept being annoying that I couldn't answer, you know, this question. It's a very simple, seemingly simple question. Why did Marx need to transform the input prices? Why is this a problem? And I'm, 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 I'm repeating this catechism and it's just stupid. And I could tell that it was stupid and I was just getting just annoyed with myself and just annoyed at his pestering. And I said, okay, let me, let me work this out. Borkevich claims that the, the simple reproduction, you know, is disrupted. The economy, you know, goes into this spurious breakdown. If the things that were bought at these one prices before production and then the new items of the same type are sold at different prices, prices of production, after production, then the e economy will break down. Let me see about this. Okay, so it wasn't even suspicion as much as, well, let me just see, you know. I see. So I sat down and I went from one period to the next and said, okay, here are these new prices that are different from the original prices and does the system break down? And that initial time, this was working without, you know, an electronic spreadsheet. This was early 1986. Uh, I had never used a spreadsheet. Um, I'm, I'm doing this by hand. And to get from the first period to the second period took me, I think, about 45 minutes to, to work it all out. And then I look at it, and there's no breakdown. And all the numbers add up to the penny. You know, there, 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 there's, there's no, like, oh, I managed to make the system not break down because uh, I, I squirreled away, you know, $14 million that's unaccounted for here. It, no, no, every, everything was, was, was accounted for. Everything was bought at these new prices. Everything was sold at these same prices. And each branch, each industry's uh, purchases equaled its sales. And, you know, whatever was left over after buying new means of production and hiring new workers, whatever was left over, that was just the right amount of sufficient funds to enable the capitalists of, of that sector to buy the all of the, the consumer goods that were available to them. I mean, everything worked out to the penny. And I, I was like, wait a minute, this is like too good to be true. <laughs> okay, this is too good to be true. Let me see what happens next period. So I'm doing this by hand, you know, with a, a pocket calculator. I, I think I did it eight, nine, four, 14 periods. It didn't take 45 minutes each time. Once I had figured out the thing, it got, it got quicker. And I can punch, you know, numbers in a calculator pretty quickly. So I don't know, maybe maybe it was a few hours. Uh, and then I call Ted McClone up on the phone. I say, uh, hi, Ted, I've solved the transformation problem. <laughs> So that's that's what happened. Okay, so he yeah he wanted I, I do you want to look at it? Of course he wanted to look at it. And o over the next couple of days, really, the, the interpretive issues that arose in understanding what I had just done, understanding the the reproduction of the system through the buying and the selling at, at new prices, uh, just interpreting that, uh, we basically had the, the TSSI. Wow. Uh, right there. Wow. So it was a combination of, of, of the, the demonstration uh, and a little bit of needed uh, interpretation thereafter, you know, during the next couple of days to, to have the whole thing wow. put together. Right, because there are all these different sort of elements of in the interpretation that are sort of important. 
like you know monetary expression of labor time buying inputs at their prices and at their values so but these things sounds like you're saying you sort of intuitively understood those issues your initial impetus was just i'm gonna not worry about input prices and output prices having to be equalized and work work this out temporally and the other everything kind of sort of fell into place conceptually based on that understanding actually let me say i don't remember whether i realized when i sat down to you know just crunch those numbers i don't know whether i realized the, the conceptual error in what Bortkevich had done which was basically to act as if he was assuming or assuming that the money laid out, the investment and the inputs at the beginning of the period is what bought the output at the end. Okay, but 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 that's not the way I thought because that's not the way it is in reality. I mean, I, I just understood intuitively that, you know, if you're uh, buying inputs, means of production, whatever, at the beginning of the second period, you're paying the prices at, at the end of the first period. So the, the prices that uh, are established at the uh, end of the first period, the, the stuff at the end of the first period is not bought with the money spent at the beginning of the period. It's bought with the money spent at the beginning of the second period. I, I, I knew that, okay? And I knew uh, also of iterative, so-called iterative solutions to the transformation problem, hmm. like Anwar Sheikh's thing. Yeah. So that was, that was something you were aware of, the Sheikh. Yeah, I I was aware of that. So basically, you know, when I said, let me work this out, I say, let me let me iterate this. And just to to be clear that Anwar Sheikh's iteration isn't temporal. It's just sort of conceptual. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of as if it's it's not a real process, but it's it's like let's imagine that what Marx did is a first step toward a solution. And let's just keep plugging along to see if we can get what Anwar Sheikh continue, considers to be the, the correct solution, which is then, you know, basically Bortkevich's solution. <laughs> uh, or I'm, I'm using all these terms. I, I, I cringe whenever I say solution and, and transformation problem. Solution, yeah. But that's how people yeah, thought they, of it. it there, there is no problem. And because there's no problem, there can't be a solution. So I, I cringe when I say this, but that, those are other people's terms, and it's hard to speak about their stuff without. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I knew some things. The issue of the, um, the the relationship between a unit of money and a unit of labor time, you know, the monetary expression of labor time. You know, one does not really need to conceptualize all of this. What I had in my head, you know, and I think what Ted had in his head, but I'm not sure. What, but what I had in my head was chapter seven and eight of volume one of Capital. And you take those chapters seriously, and that's the temporal single system interpretation, really, right there. Okay, I mean, that this is where Marx explains everything as a process, sequential, taking place in real time. And you know, so I, I, I took that. You know, I had no reasons not to not to take that seriously, at least as like this is what he's trying to do. And and right there in chapters in chapter seven, you know, he relates uh, this unit of money and and. It's the monetary expression of uh, so many hours of labor, so so it it was it was there, and I don't even know if I you you know actually to do what I did, to demonstrate that Porkevich's alleged proof was not valid, 
you don't actually have to specify, nor did I specify, the number of hours of labor that were performed. You know, so it doesn't begin explicitly with physical quantities of inputs and outputs. It does not begin, you know, or there's no explicit indication of the number of hours uh, of labor. I mean, what, what's important when you're moving from you know the first period to the second and the third is to keep constant the total new value added by uh, living labor in each sector. If you're assuming, if you're assuming, which I had to, because this is the conditions under which Borkevich said he was proving it, assuming that the system is in balance with no growth and simple reproduction. So assuming that, the, the key thing is you hold constant the, the total amount of new value created by living labor in each sector. And that, that I did. That took a little while f figuring that out. That was, you know, maybe 20, 25 minutes of that 45-minute uh, initial initial thing. So that, that took a little while to figure out exactly how to operationalize that, you know, with numbers. So I didn't need to explicitly deal with uh, the issues of, of, of a melt at that point. You only need that if you're, like, uh, explicitly moving from physical quantities to value or value to physical quantities. I mean, there's some other things that you probably... I'm assuming had to develop down the road as you had to sort of defend your new interpretation or the TSSI against other against critics. Get to those. I'm thinking of like pre-production, reproduction price, or just sort of matters of what makes an interpretation a good interpretation. There, there were certain things that I, I still, at least for my own benefit, needed to develop. Uh, I mean, like one thing was the monetary expression of labor time. I mean, we, we, we had that even if, if we didn't have a name. But to really get it right at a level that I was like uh, satisfied with, that actually took me years. For some reason, now I look at it and I go, well, why didn't I see this? But, but the issue is that, okay, you have one monetary expression of labor time for the start of this period and a different one for the end of this period, which is the beginning of the next period. Uh, and all the numbers, you know, make sense, but or can seem that things go awry because if you try to say, well, you know, what's the monetary expression of the new value added by living labor, that becomes a whole different amount and it, it seems to come out of nowhere and it make no sense whatsoever, right? To, to work all of that out, you know, I, I had to be able to understand that that lack of sense pertains to the nature of that question, you know, it's like... You know, only, only there's only a monetary expression of, of, of inputs and outputs, and, and to get the accounts to to work and to understand how they worked, that took some work. Also, at, at this point, I had not understood that this Okisho theorem thing had anything to do with what I had done in an entirely different context. So you and Ted McGlone co-authored a paper. Yeah, basically. So I'm still a student in this um, political economy course. Uh, in the PhD program at the University of Utah, and you know that was one of the major requirements of the uh, that quarter. It was on the quarter system, so you know you had to write a paper. So I worked with Ted, and we produced this paper, and among other things, it shows that uh, there is no problem. And I submitted to Mark Glick, who was the professor. That is that that is, by the way, the first version of a paper that was heavily revised thereafter and uh, published in. I believe 1988 uh, in capital and class. 
under the title uh, the transformation non-problem and the non-transformation problem or the non-transformation problem the transformation non-problem whatever what one of those two so when you wrote the paper did you have a sense of what kind of response you were going to get did you think people are going to celebrate this as a long-awaited uh, liberation of marx from the the terror of the transformation problem or did you suspect you were going to be treated as persona non grata or you know enemy number one uh well i i, I wasn't sure but i i didn't even have it as a question i just like assumed they were like you know all these people well you know marx forgot to transform the input prices and you know it's a real shame but uh, don't worry because you know we fixed everything oh it's so unfortunate he made this mistake so i mean i, I took them at their word taking them at their word i just assumed that they would be yeah like you say overjoyed that uh, here you can now see that the, there is no problem that you know you might like what mark said you might not like what mark said but if you say you know you you like it but we can't do it the way he did it well yeah you can here and so i remember that like i held this little uh, seminar for some other students and i explained the whole thing and i had this handout and i went through it laboriously i i really thought that people would be into it and this thing that supposedly hung over everybody's heads it was over with and of course it didn't go down like that at all but just understanding the magnitude of the resistance to that has been decades in the making i mean i did not really fully understand the full breadth and depth of the resistance even when i published uh reclaiming marx's capital because i was only at that point still familiar with economists resistance to it and an abhorrence of the idea that there's not an internal inconsistency in what Marx did there. I, I was not really familiar with the, the reaction of, of non-economists, which, you know, typically at first, you know, when they first encounter this, they're either like, well, this isn't my issue, you know, so I don't really have anything to say, or, or they, they just like the, uh, the general idea of Marx having gotten things right until it comes into conflict with kind of like things they do care about which is the the ability to turn marks into a, a a blank canvas on which you can paint your own colors i mean that that seems to be the one constant that pervades all of so-called marxian academia also a lot of political tendencies are operate in the same way everybody loves marx as long as we're not talking literally about Marx and what he said, and here there's some determinate text and it has determinate meanings that can be understood through principles of interpretation. As long as it's not that, but you can like Marx and then mean by Marx what you want it to mean, neither more nor less, like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, then, then you get a lot of people liking Marx, and this is no, by no means a problem for just just the economists. But, but really, even into 2007, when reclaiming Marx's capital, which summarizes basically two decades of, of, of research uh, on the, the temporal single system interpretation, through 2007, I really didn't have a, a strong sense of any of that. It, it's only been in the in the last 13 years that the full magnitude of the problem and, and the full therefore the full nature of the problem became 
unmistakably clear to me. There's nothing particular to the Marxian economists about this. It would seem that way because it's their ox that's being gored, but it's not about equilibrium conceptions per se, and it's not about the standing within the economics profession per se. The underlying problem is that both throughout academia and, you know, in, in the sort of Marxian politics, those political tendencies that uh, say that, uh, you know, they like Marx or whatever. The, the issue is we, we like Marx, but we like our Marx. It's it's not it's not that the TSSI even necessarily presents a different Marx. That's not the issue. The, the issue is when this becomes an empirical question of what Marx said, and that when you say Marx said, you have to be rigorous and talk about particular texts, and they have to be interpreted responsibly, and there can be a debate about the, what's the correct one, and it doesn't depend on what you like or what political conclusions you're aiming for or your career prospects or what you want to uh, use this to say. When it's not about you, but it's about Marx, then it's like, get the hell out of here, to put it mildly. So, so what were some of the first reactions that you got when you handed this to your professor or when you did sort of pre presentations for other grad students or even when you you know sent this off to Capital in class to get published? What were the kind of reactions that you got? From the professor, very surprisingly, there was like a one-line comment <laughs> on the paper. Uh, this was Mark Glick. He was a student and devotee of uh, Gerard Dumanil. Okay. And he wrote, Congratulations, you've produced the iterative version of the, the Dumanil-Foley approach or interpretation. That was meant as a sarcastic comment because I think it was abundantly clear to him that we were not int intending to produce an iterative version of anything but to say that what Marx did was perfectly fine. Each period stands on its own as a, as a real, real historic period. Most of the students remained, you know, in, in my program remained sort of perplexed and it, it wasn't their issue. The people who were more tied to Hunt and Glick, they became really standoffish. They may have said a couple of things to indicate that they didn't like it, but I don't think they even knew then why they didn't like it. They just knew what side they were on. That's the way a lot of this works. I mean, if, if, there, if there were criticisms, I don't remember what they were. They were just kind of inconsequential. A lot of the, the, the abhorrence was um, initially framed in very kind of couched terms as skepticism. Then there would always be like... What do you really need this for? There's always a defensiveness about the, the so-called solutions and these other approaches. I mean, because they, once you you show that what Marx did was not wrong, you got all these other things out there that purport to be solutions, and they might be good on their own terms or might be bad on their own terms, but they're not solutions to a problem in Marx that has to be fixed. So there was always defensiveness about that, and that continues uh, to this day. So there was that. We, we had a very nice reception from Capital and Class. It has always been not only one of the fairest journals, but one of the journals that does the most to actually help the authors improve their paper. Not that they work real closely with you, but they manage to have reviewers and to weed out the bad comments of reviewers and say, okay, do this and do that to improve your paper. 
So, so that's what we did. We had to do some, some revisions, but there was not hostility in the reviews, at least the ones that we saw, and, and we improved the paper, and um, it was published. So at some point, the Okichio theorem also became an object of your criticism. How did that come about? That whole incident with Ted McLone, like Diogenes, like, why did Marx need to transform the input prices? Why did not Marx need to transform the input prices? Like, you know, what's the problem? That became really a transformative moment in my life because I, for the first time, realized I had to think for myself. And I began to think for myself. And it didn't matter, like, a bunch of professors, and they're all Marxists, and they all like Marx, and they all say that that stuff no longer meant anything to me, and it was pretty immediate. So, obviously, I must have kept hearing things about the Sokishio theorem, but I, again, I sit down and, and, and I look at it, and at this point, it's not that hard for me to see the problem is that the alleged theorem is forcing the, the input prices to equal the output prices, and that the whole thing depends on that. So, um, you know, I was able to produce some rudimentary thing that did disprove the, the Ocasio theorem. It's not that hard. You just let the input prices differ from the, from the output prices. And so I, I was able to produce a paper like that pretty uh, pretty quickly, but it didn't have a fixed capital in it. And, it, you know, had a lot of problems, but it, it was it was a disproof of the, the Ocasio theorem. And that was probably sometime in 1987 that, that I was able to do this. Hmm. So pretty quickly after the transformation. Pretty quickly, yeah. And I say, look, you know, I show some people. One of them I, n- I now know is a professor at the University of Manitoba. I said, look, I've disproved the Okisho theorem. And this, well, this is a contribution to the discussion. I wouldn't call it a disproof. Why not? You know, I didn't get it. It never got an answer to, to those kinds of things. It was always a post-truth environment. We want to know why we, we, we have Donald Trump and Trumpism after Trump and this incipient fascism. Well, the, the ground for it is... is has been laid and it hasn't been uh, just a alt-right thing or even a right-wing thing. So it's like people will say whatever it's in their own interest or perceived interest, which is not surprising at all. What's really bad is that they're able to get away with this. So at some point you make contact with Alan Freeman or he makes contact with you. How did that happen? Well, you know, I, I knew the name Alan Freeman because I was aware pretty early on in, in 1986 of this book that had come out just, I think, the year before, uh, Marx Ricardo Rafa, that Alan Freeman co-edited, I think, along with Ernest Mandel, and it had a lot of uh, criticisms of uh, Shroffianism, and I could see that there was some affinity between what Alan was doing and you know, what I had done and, and Ted McLone had done. But what, what he had was not yet in that book, the, the, what we now call the TSSI. But I, I didn't know him. And w- the other thing one has to keep in mind is this is, uh, first of all, in the, in the mid-1980s, uh, a little bit thereafter, there was no Skype, there was no email. Alan was in Britain. Transatlantic phone calls were expensive, and I didn't even have his phone number. I, you know, so I, I didn't even like think about uh, contacting him. It just didn't occur to me. I do remember Ted and McClone and I knowing about this paper, which we could see was a temporal single-system paper by Guglielmo Carcati. Uh, and saying, gee, we should write to him, and, and we discussed, you know, what, what we should say, and so forth. It never actually happened. Okay, so out of the blue, sometime in 1993, if I'm not mistaken, I received this 
thick, maybe an inch and a half thick package from from London. And it's from Alan Freeman. And it's got this letter at the start and photocopies of a large number of papers of his. Uh, I don't know that any of them had ever been published. That That's a, a, a feature of, uh, of, of Alan Freeman <laughs> to write a lot of things I've come to know that as and, and not to pursue publication of them uh, until the end. Yeah, I've come um, to uh, know that about Alan, yeah. too. So <laughs> that, there, there may have been six or eight things. I mean, some of them were longer, some of them were shorter. And I looked at this and it was like, yeah, this is the, the TSSI. One of these papers is about the Okishio theorem, and I look at it, and he's got a graph there, and it's like, oh yeah, I know that graph. I, I've produced the same graph on, on, on my spreadsheet, uh, and it's a graph that we have since called the TSSI fish, because it looks like a fish's head. You start off on the left of the graph at time zero, and your physical rate of profit, the Akisha rate of profit, and the value rate of profit, they start off at the same point. That's the point of the fish's head. And over time, the Akisha physical rate of profit goes up. So that's the top of the head of the fish. And the value price rate of profit goes down. So that completes the bottom side of the, the fish's head. So he had a TSSI fish graph. I have a TSSI fish graph. We called it something different. But I write back to him. I go, look, you know, here, here's my paper or, or whatever. Uh, so what had happened is 1993 is he'd been working with this this other guy, an Italian who's recently deceased now, uh, Paolo Giussani. And they had basically worked this all out. And actually, Giussani had kind of like produced a work of his own that was like this independently. And there's a whole story of how Alan came to this independently. And then they began to collaborate uh, for a short while. But anyway, so they're, they're collaborating for a short while and they've worked it all out to their satisfaction. And, you know, Alan being a more organizational guy, you know, he thinks about a question that like a lot of people would never think of. OK, so where do we go with this? What do we do next? And if, if I re- recall which I think I do, uh, the story as Alan tells it, Paolo said, why don't you, we, we just contact other people? And, well, there's, you know, there's Andrew Kleiman and uh, Ted McLone in the U.S., and there's this one here, and there's that one there. And that's how this package end up, ended up arriving in, uh, on my doorstep or something. <laughs> but I tell you, it, it was it, it's really amazing when you produce this graph, and it, it really is, is a graph that is a disproof, you know, of the Akisha theorem, and it says, you know, Here's the thing. Yeah, his, his rate of profit's got to go up, but there's this other rate of profit, and it goes down. Under the same conditions. It's not a different model, okay? It's not, it's not that we're changing the assumptions to get, to get a different, different result. It's that you have a different conception of, of valuation, and you don't force the input prices to equal the output prices. So given the same physical data, given the same everything, his thing goes up, and he can call it a rate of profit all he wants, but the actual rate of profit based on the actual amount invested, that goes down. Okay, and to see this graph that somebody else has produced, picture's worth a thousand words. So, like, what I'm reading is, is and it's just like, it's, it's, it's worth, it's worth 10,000 words. It was just so cool. So, and Alan, Alan basically had the same reaction, you know, and so we just, we just knew we were on the same wavelength. To have two people have produced that same graph, you have to be thinking the same way. But there's a very interesting story that Alan tells about how he actually came to embrace the, the temporal single system interpretation. Is that something you can relate? 
Yeah, it's something I can relate because he he he's, he said this publicly. He he understood that the simultaneous stuff was was all always problematic. So he's always trying to do things temporally. So he had these spreadsheets where he's trying to track value and price and do it all temporally. But he gets these problems because you reach the end of the period. Okay, so what price do the inputs of the next period sell at? Their value or their price? Well, what he did is he took the discrepancies at the end of each period and he created a separate column for them. I mean, basically, that's what engineers do. You know, he just, he just like, here, here's something that I can't account for, uh, and, uh, you know, I'll deal with it later. But he had a column of all of the, the price value discrepancies. And finally, his, his sticking point was that he hadn't embraced the single system aspect of the TSSI, the idea that the value of capital does not depend on the values of its material elements, you know, means of production and workers' subsistence goods. But the value of capital, constant capital and, and variable capital, is determined by, in part, by the prices of the, the means of production uh, and subsistence. He hadn't broken with, with orthodoxy that discrepancy in the Borkovician orthodoxy between the value of capital and the price of capital. He hadn't broken with that. But one day he just says, you know, let me just play with it, because you can do that with the spreadsheet. Let me just play with it and imagine that these things don't sell at their values at the end of the period, okay, but they sell at their prices at the end of the period, okay, so the inputs are bought with the prices. And he puts that change in his spreadsheet and he sees all of the column of discrepancies become column of zeros. And if, if you're like doing a spreadsheet, that's just like, that, that's magic time, right? Because that, that's your validity check. That's, that's how you know that you've done your calcu calculations right, that your, your, your check goes down to zero. So he, he knew that that was right. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the TSSI or aspects of it were like independently discovered by a lot of people. You had Robin Murray doing something against the Okisho theorem circa 1980. You had John Ernst. Uh, in New York, at the New School, doing something very similar. You had uh, Paolo Giussani, early 80s, on his own. You had, um, in France, Michel Husson, writing under a pseudonym in a paper that was just in, in, published in French. So you had Alan Freeman. Somewhat later, you had Ted McLone and myself. You had uh, Eduardo Maldonado Filho, you know, from Brazil, but he was at the New School. He, he refuted, basically, the allegations of uh, a transformation problem and he showed it to Anwar Sheikh and Anwar Sheikh said well this is very interesting but if th these things are values then I don't know what value is and <laughs> told, told that to me and I go yeah you know he was right <laughs> he, he, he was right he, he doesn't know what values are so um so you know, I don't know if that was ever published at the time, you know, but that was around the same time as well. You know, look, it's not surprising that this all happens at the same time and independently because the Shroffian model, the Shroffian approach, and, and whatever else, you know, one could call it if people are not Shroffians, but the this, this simultaneous dual system construction uh, of these things it's limited, it has only a few features, and there's only a few things that could possibly make it screw up the way it does. 
and it's a hot topic at that point. After Ian Stephen comes out with Marx after Slafa, nineteen seventy-seven. So for the next several years, people are focused on that. You know, people are always like, wow, you know, it's like Leibniz and Newton came up with the calculus at the same time. Like, how did that happen? Like, all these people came up with the, the temporal single system interpretation at the same time. How did that happen? Well, there's really no mystery. Interesting. Inter- that, that, I hadn't really thought of that before, but that's very interesting. Understanding the, the timing of Steedman's book and, you know, having read, you know, I read all the TSS die stuff and then I read Steedman's book. But when you read Steedman's book, it, you know, when I read it now, I, it becomes very clear to me. He, the issues become very clear how they're laid out. So in terms of um, how the Sraffian approach is just really incompatible with, with what Marx is trying to do. So I could see how that book could cause people to just revisit these issues of method and start to question some of these things more clearly. Yeah. I mean, what Steedman did at the time, I think that made him so successful and influential is he was extremely forceful and he basically said, and and John Romer did the same thing with his book, uh, Analytical Foundations of Marxian Economic Theory. He said, the responses that you people have come up with are complete crap. He used the word obscurantism, but basically they were both right. Romer was right and Steedman was right that people had not yet, for some reason, glommed on to the need to do things temporally and in a single system. Although, way, way back, 1973 or so, Anwar Sheikh wrote this letter to Joan Robinson explaining what was wrong with this idea that you get negative values under joint production, and he says it's because it's not being done temporally. So even he had had an understanding of, of some of this. So, but the public, publicly known criticisms were really weak, hand-waving defenses, you know, or, well, you know, you don't really understand what uh, Marx was trying to say. And, and just things that just don't cut muster if, you know, if you're a, a rigorous intellectual. Steedman made that very clear, and he pushed the point, and he pushed the implications of everything, because a lot of people had, try, had been trying to like split the difference. And Steedman made clear, you, you can't split the difference here. You can maybe say, you know, I'm a materialist, that, uh, you know, I want a materialist conception. He says, yeah, but you got to go with the physical quantities approach to do that. You've got to abandon Marx's value theory unless you can come up with some rigorous alternative to what I'm saying here. Romer did the the same thing in his book, Analytical Foundations of Marxian Economic Theory, with respect to, to the Okishio theory. He says, you can't just keep picking at this and, and, and saying, well, the system is never actually in equilibrium. The theorem says that if it does, the system does return to an equalized rate of profit, that new rate of profit must be higher than the initial one, given the conditions that Marx assumes in his law of the potential fall of the rate of profit. He, he poses what are really the key issues very starkly. Stephen does the same thing. And that, that that's what made these works so important. I mean, people could no longer get away with their cute little ways of trying to split the difference and, and hide. And, and, and so forth. And now a brief word from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you are interested in knowing more about the TSSI, we recommend you read Andrew's book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital. Well, if you want to know more about some of the other issues discussed, please check out the website, marxisthumanistinitiative.org. If you are a fan of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please write. Please leave us a comment. Please rate the podcast. Please share it with your friends and enemies. 